0: Hello and welcome to Sparks in Action. This is Donna. Thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Jimmy Buff. And Jimmy is somebody who helped found and create Radio Kingston in Kingston, New York. And I'm so happy to have you on the show, Jimmy. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. You bet. Thanks. So I'd like to start, um, there's a specific reason I invited you to be on the podcast, and I'd like to ask you to give our listeners some information about your background, how you started in radio, what attracted you to radio, and then how you got to this point with Radio Kingston.
1: Um, Do they still have matchbooks? I don't know if they have actually have matchbooks.
0: Nope. I've seen a few here and there, but not in the last year, I haven't looked for them.
1: So I I can uh, trace um, 35 plus years in radio to a matchbook cover uh, in New York City in the mid 1980s, and came across a matchbook cover that uh, advertised a place called the Center for the Media Arts. I had no inclination to uh, be in radio as a career up until that point, I mean, I loved radio, I mean, I was a diehard radio fan, and I loved music. Uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in New York City. We did the Great Suburban Migration when I was two out to Suffolk County. Uh, by the time I was 18, 19 years old, I had discovered some great New York City rock and roll radio stations like WNEW FM. I broke the tuning knob off the, the uh, stereo in my first car because it was hard to find on my dial and I didn't want anyone messing it up. They were, the radio station was that influential to me, but I never thought of it as a career. And in the uh, early uh, to mid-1980s, I was just sort of floundering and just, you know, had no real direction in my life. And I came across this thing that said, uh, learn radio in six months. And I thought, okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I went to, they were uh, in the fashion district in, in Midtown. And I was living, I'd moved back to Queens. I was living and caring for my uh, elderly grandfather. And uh, I went into this place and they helped me immediately get a school loan to cover their tuition, which they were really good at doing. And, uh, you know, I spent six months at this school um, and it gave me some basic insight, but not any real tools. The greatest thing Going to the Center for Media Arts did for me is it got me an internship at that very same radio station, WNEW FM. And in April 1985, can we I started.
0: Should... Can I just ask you a quick question? I want to keep you on this, but can you tell, say something about what it was about WNEW, just a sentence or two, that was so fabulous?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. The um, uh, uh, disc jockeys there, um, legendary to anyone who, uh, the names are legendary to anyone who grew up in the New York City area. Uh, the way they presented music and their insight and the music that they were playing at that time, uh, just, you know, it had a thing for me. It just, it just hit me in the right spot. Okay. And uh, I would soon end up working with some of those people. Uh, but it was just, you know, it seemed a little bit exotic in New York city radio station. I will say that growing up in um, mid long Island uh, there was another great fm rock station out of new haven connecticut wplplr i was closer to new haven connecticut as the crow flies than i was to new york city and so those two radio stations really opened my eyes to a whole world of music and uh so that was the attraction there
0: okay so back to the school so that yeah so back to the school of media arts
1: yeah so i get this internship in april of 1985 to go work at WNAW-FM. They have, uh, they're doing a promotion for the month of April. It's called S- uh, Spring Cleaning. And every uh, album that they play on the air, every song that they play on the air, they give away the album that it's from, the actual vinyl, because it was the days of vinyl. And they needed a lot of people to answer the phones. And uh, it was a, a, a big lift for them to get that many people to answer the phones and give away the, the albums. And I committed to doing the morning show Monday through Thursday from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. And it just cleared up a whole bunch of logistical stuff for that morning show. And I got to see how a morning radio show was done. Um, I became friendly with the people who were doing the show. Uh, Within six months, I had been hired as a part-time production assistant. I contributed to some of the writing. They did sketch comedy, and I contributed to some of the writing of of the bits. And, uh, you know, from there, it was just, you know, a ladder. They ended up firing that morning show maybe a year and a half later, they kept me on as an interim producer for the incoming returning morning show host. Uh, I did that for about six weeks with the program director filling in, um, who then recommended me to be the full-time producer for the uh, returning morning show host. And uh, yeah, I spent seven years doing that at WNWFM.
0: Yeah. And then uh, so from NEWFM, then you moved upstate to Woodstock at WDST. Was that, was that the.
1: uh, No, there was a stop uh, in between uh, at one of uh, until Radio Kingston, the uh, maybe the most uh, amazing thing experience I had in radio was, you know, those seven years at WNEWFM, I did meet all those legendary disc jockeys and uh, started to get disillusioned by the fact that they were no longer uh, the uh, cutting-edge presenters that they were in the late 60s, early 70s, mid-70s, even into the early 80s. They now had a, a very, very controlled, tightly, play, uh, uh, tightly controlled small playlist. Um, they were all celebrities. They were all making a lot of money, and not, uh, they, there was no inclination to challenge the status quo. And mm-hmm. while they had this experience of having helped develop progressive FM radio... Uh, they were no longer doing it themselves and it was starting to disillusion me. I'd hear great music. It would come into the radio station and we wouldn't play it because it, you know, for one reason or another, it was deemed, you know, not um, uh, lowest common denominator enough to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. And uh, so by, you know, the, the morning show host who I had worked with had left the radio station to go work somewhere else. Um, we, myself, and, and the sportscaster on the show, Kirk Chaplin, uh, were kind of in this disillusioned place together. And uh, we got fired in uh, February of 1992. We knew it was coming. You know, when radio stations change morning shows, it's usually a, a clean sweep, mm. my previous experience notwithstanding. And um, we started plotting our own morning show. And we ended up leasing time on a radio station uh, whose studios were in Chinatown. Uh, They were licensed to Newark, New Jersey, and their transmitter was on the Channon Building, which is across the street from Grand Central Station. Not Mm -hmm. the Empire State Building, where many radio stations had their uh, transmitters, or the World Trade Center, where a lot of other radio stations. And as a result of the location of the transmitter and tower, it had a really great signal in um, four and a half of the five boroughs. There were some pockets in the Upper West Side or some other places where the signal didn't get for a variety of reasons, but we raised money and we did our own morning show called Radio Free New York for about a year. The business model was that we were gonna sell enough local advertising to support salaries for myself, my partner, and some of the staff, and that you know eventually maybe even turn a profit. And we were close to doing that after just a year, or not quite a year, Uh, But the people who owned the radio station um, were not interested in the extraordinary thing that we were doing. And they just wouldn't give us terms, long-term lease agreement that would satisfy potential investors. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the aspects, one of the things we were doing, we were playing all this new exciting music that no one else in New York radio was doing. Uh, We did not endear ourselves to our former colleagues at at FM by saying that we were doing their morning show, just not there. And we also spent a good part of that year picking a fight with Howard Stern.
0: Oh, what a great person to pick a fight with.
1: <laughs> it was. Okay. And there were, you know, it was twofold. The idea was, I'm sorry.
0: Between us, did he play nasty? <laughs>
1: and no, he um, was hip to our tricks and didn't say a word about us while we were there. Okay. Uh, while we were doing this because okay. we were doing it. One, because we realized if he talked about us, people would listen and we had no budget for promotion. Mm-hmm. And two, we had a fervent belief that he was um, it wasn 't just that he was salacious or misogynistic or homophobic or uh, puerile or juvenile or anything he actually hurt people He used the, that platform to to hurt people in their personal lives and in their careers and that was really deeply distressing to us at the time uh, in recent years he has um, Uh, He's done what Michael Corleone couldn't do. He's gone legit. Uh, He's acknowledged some of the hurt that he was harmed, he caused back in the day. But we spent, you know, the better part of Radio Free New York that year in New York City um, playing the most amazing, extraordinary, exciting new music and picking a fight with Howard Stern. And uh, yeah, and then um, that crashed and burned. And uh, so did my first marriage. And I ended up in Woodstock, uh, which is like the island of misfit toys, in the uh, Rudolph c- cartoons, you know, it's like all these people who have these extraordinary idiosyncrasies, but they come together in this place, and remarkably it works. And, and I found um, some personal and professional healing there, uh, but you can't make a living in, in uh, or then you couldn't make a living in the Catskill Mountains doing small, small town radio. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years after I came up, actually it was a little over a year uh, after I came up, I ended up going back to New York City to work at Howard Stern's radio station.
0: Oh, I didn't know that part of your career as well. Okay. That's interesting.
1: Oh yeah. It was interesting, particularly after I was in the afternoon, so I didn't see Howard. I was producing the afternoon show. And one afternoon I got a call from the program director who said, uh, did you hear Howard this morning? And I said, no, because I didn't really listen. He said, Oh, he just remembered who you are. Uh, how do you feel about going on his show tomorrow? I said, do I have a choice? And he said, no, not really. So I did my penance in the Howard Stern box, which was not bad. Mm -hmm. Um, you know it was uh, uh he i the morning i sat down across the, the uh, audio board from him he couldn't make eye contact mm-hmm. with me and that immediately put me at ease for some reason and you know i did my my bit there uh, uh and um he was very uh clear you know that he didn't want you know he sent his producer gary to talk to me immediately after i was uh, wasn't on the show Uh, after my appearance had ended, to let me know that my job wasn't in danger or anything.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. He would go out of his way to say hello to me whenever we saw each other in the hall. And I doubt he would even remember me all these years later. But I realized at that moment that his hurt was so deep that had I rejected those overtures, then he would have turned mean. And uh, so I did my time there at K-Rock and they flipped formats while I was there and i just couldn't you know i just i ended up back in woodstock and my experience the second time around was vastly different from my first but again after 2 years i left to go back to new york city because you, you got to make a living and internet radio was just bubbling up as a thing and i worked for the first uh, all online internet radio company called iata.com and i ran the health fitness and adventure channel for uh, about a year and a half until they ran out of money and I ended up moving back upstate permanently, worked for a year at WKZE in Sharon, Connecticut, ended up back at WDST for a dozen years or so as their program director, see the morning show host and the afternoon show host. And that's a, a typical um, resume for someone in radio for a long time. That you, <laughs> you're a little bit nomadic.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah, nomadic with like periods of you know putting up the tent and maybe even putting down a little bit of a foundation, it sounds like. so so let's bring it up now to Radio Kingston. Um, when I was on the website and looking up the mission and vision, um, it is so clearly spelled out to me. So I'd like you I'd like to hear from you a little bit about, Um, the genesis of Radio Kingston. And if you could let our listeners know, I didn't write down the mission and vision. I thought it would be better to come from you, what Radio Kingston's vision is, what its mission is. And um, then I've got some more questions about that.
1: So um, the genesis for Radio Kingston began when I was at Radio Woodstock WDST. And a friend of mine who was in a terrific uh, band called Mercury Rev um, sent me a song that he had just worked on. It was a cover version of the... Tears for Fear song, Shout. And it was done by a fellow named Peter Buffett. And I had come across Peter's music in the late 80s, early 90s when I was at WNAW-FM. Um, he was kind of what would then be described as new age contemporary new jazz music. And, and the record came in and I did what many people did is I wondered if he was related to Jimmy Buffett. And then I heard his music and found out otherwise. And so uh, when I heard this song, it triggered that memory and I invited Peter to come in and talk about the song why he made it because a lot of people think um, shout is like primal scream therapy the song is about primal scream therapy and it's not it's a protest song. It's about shouting your outrage at what's going on in the world and keeping up the attention and the awareness that's necessary for real change to happen. And we just, we just hit it off and we played protest songs back and forth that morning and he became a regular guest on my show. and. We would end up talking about some of the uh, extraordinary things that were occupying his mind at that time. And uh, the program director, uh, actually not the program director, the owner of the radio station, didn't like that, that kind of talk in the morning. So we created a weekend show, an hour-long weekend show, and we would record it during the week. It was my favorite hour of every week. And I got to listen to extraordinary thinkers about um, what kind of things we could do differently in the world for some sort of paradigm shift. And uh, one thing led to another after a couple of years of this, and the idea bubbled up that maybe there was a local radio station that, that, um, that could be bought and these kind of ideas could be shared out to a wider audience on a regular basis. And lo and behold, we found WKNY, whose call letters are perfect, we wanted it to be focused on Kingston, New York, Uh, It was owned by a big radio company called Town Square Media. They own two, three hundred stations across the country, which in another podcast, we can talk about that problem of mass media ownership. Uh, But they remarkably were willing to let this, you know, thousand watt AM radio station uh, go. And Mm -hmm. so the radio station was purchased and the intention was to um, open up the platform to people who had no access to it prior. Uh, three quarters of the programming of WKNY four years ago was syndicated from a company called Westwood One. And uh, it had a vague local feel to it. But the music and presentation that uh, people were listening to for you know, 75% of the time here at WKNY was being simulcast to 400 or on 400 other radio stations at the same time. Okay, And uh, we decided to let that go and create the opportunity for um, live local radio to be created here at WKNY, uh, which was being done on weekends, primarily, um, spearheaded and safeguarded by Warren Lawrence, who has been at this radio station for 48 years. Mm. Okay. And we created this hybrid of legacy local WKNY programming. And within oh, six months, we had added 30 or 35 individual radio shows, new radio voices, and now, uh, almost four years in, we have over 50 radio shows, separate radio shows, with something like 70 contributors to Radio Kingston, to WKNY. We added an FM signal a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, do you have the mission statement in front of you, or do you have easy access to that? I don't. okay, okay.
1: I don't, uh, and um, I could... I could paraphrase it, but the idea is the idea is to open up this platform to voices that didn't have access to it in, in order to create, uh, create a, a more just and equitable Kingston, particularly Kingston. We are focused on this, this you know, the, the, out, the, the farthest reaches of our signal, which don't go very far. Uh, and the idea in, in most media is to broaden your reach as far as you can. Our uh, um, ethos is to go deeper, not wider. And so we do that using storytelling through conversation, through music. Uh, and, you know, our, our intention is to reflect this place, Kingston, back to itself through the programming uh, that's done here.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think if any, all that anybody has to do is look at your programming and that mirror that you're holding up is powerful but it seems to me that it's even more than a mirror that it's also um, a place where things begin where things happen where conversations um, and storytelling as you say allow actions to be taken and support actions in the community and to that i wanted to ask you Uh, question. Kingston's gone through a lot of changes prior to the pandemic. It was becoming a place that was sort of seen as like, you know, a place to be. You know, it's been having this burgeoning growth. And then during the pandemic, it's grown. I know real estate prices have gone up. So what is your take on uh, the current state of Kingston? and how the radio station can continue to keep supporting the community.
1: That is the, uh, that's the um, question. That's the question of the day. You know, I was uh, um, uh, out this past weekend and uh, you know, there were a lot of people out and about taking in the city and its sites and from out of the area, you know, it was apparent that they were, you know, day trippers and visiting. And um, I was sitting there, you know, I was walking the dog and and just kind of like you know, if I were them, I would be walking through, you know, this this you know the historic uptown neighborhood and saying, "Wow, this stuff is amazing and this food is great." And these this 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 um, bar coffee shop is amazing. And I'd be down on the Hudson River on the Rondout Creek, feeling the same way. Um, I might go through Midtown Kingston uh, in a cursory way, which happens a lot. I might notice the uh, new Broadway streetscape, uh, traffic patterns, which I think are paradigm shifting, but which have caused a lot of concern for people as they try and get used to them. And I would pay no attention to what issues might be underneath that. And the big issue here is gentrification, is the income gap um, for uh, the, uh, people in poverty. And mm-hmm. the bullseye is squarely on Midtown Kingston. For a number of years, Uptown Kingston has struggled with, with gentrification and downtown as well. But those are sort of the, the, you know, the, the crown jewels in the, in the crown of, of Kingston. Mm-hmm. But the heart and soul of Kingston is Midtown. And how do we protect our most vulnerable citizens is really the question of the day. Mm-hmm. There are other issues that are, are facing Kingston um, that have uh, connections to you know, some of the, the big national issues, but n- none so much as gentrification. You know, we have uh, police accountability is an issue for, for us here in Kingston. Yeah. But that issue, the issue is how do we keep people in place, in the place that they've been for a long, long time? And it's not an easy thing to do. The house prices in Kingston have risen 40% in a year. I believe it's the highest increase in the country. The value of my house in uptown Kingston has jumped 40% in a year uh, because of the pandemic. People are now coming here because they've read about it in some magazine, some lifestyle magazine, and they can afford a house and work remotely to New York City where they're getting New York City salaries, but can afford, you know, a rundown Victorian uh, that they renovate while, uh, you know, uh, moving the people who live there out into some uncertain future. But there are real um, foundational issues here to address in Kingston. And what we hope with radio stations that those issues are reflected in, in our programming in mm-hmm. conversations that are held on the air, uh, either uh, by myself or other people, that they find themselves those, you know, inevitably it feels like those conversations would happen on the air anyhow, but that they get, they get um, surfaced and named and uh, that uh, the powers that be, because gentrification exists solely for one reason and that's because policies, governmental policies to prevent it from happening don't exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're, uh, you know, giving lip service to wanting to keep people in their homes, but at the same time, realizing that if gentrification happens, it's not a bad thing for your city because your tax base goes up. And for Kingston, most of the people coming here, you know, are going to vote blue no matter who. And so you need the apparatus of local government to step in and uh, my opinion, anyhow, and, and stop the, 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 you know, and I don't even know if it's possible right now. I know that I've never seen Uh, gentrification slowed anywhere where it's, where it's hit critical mass. And it feels Mm -hmm. like we're, we're just about there in Kingston. So some real, real problems here in the, in the city of Kingston to be addressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you address them, do you, do you get um, elected officials and community leaders wanting to engage in the conversation publicly on the radio? Do you have, or do you get a lot of pushback
1: if we ask them? (laughs) If we make the invitation to join us, uh, they'll they'll come on, Um, and it's a challenge because uh, there is, um, you know, uh, uh, politicians are well-practiced in in the art of not saying much, Mm -hmm. and you can ask the question, and you can poke and prod, but, um, you know, unless real action takes place, unless pressure is brought to bear on them from the electorate, there's not much that, that really changes.
0: Okay, okay. I also wanted to say something about just sort of how I sort of imagine why I invited you on the podcast, but also how I imagine your role in the community, because since I've known you, I always think of you as you're a very like um, strong node in the net. Like, you know, we're all, like I think of Indra's net, you know, that in in Buddhism, there's this metaphor of this beautiful net and every node is a jewel and each of us is that jewel and, you know, maybe it's our job to polish ourselves so we can reflect each other's light and help connect. And whenever I have a question or a resource, one of the first people I think of is, Jimmy Buff will know. Jimmy will know who to contact or who is a good match for something like this. So I want to say that to you and to our listeners that uh, you have really, in my view, like really walked your talk and really ha- let yourself be and, and volunteered yourself as a strong point person, resource. In whatever community you're in and I think of it not just Kingston but the community at large so I want to say that and thank you for that and I also want to ask you that just to go we're gonna to have to wrap up fairly soon to so just to go a little personal for a minute or a little more personal we you're speaking personally but about you personally what is your deepest heartfelt desire you know in terms of Here you are, you know, with this wonderful non-commercial platform, and what, or I can phrase it as, what brings you the greatest joy with respect to your work in the world?
1: You know, that's I a personal
0: a, toe, you
1: know? Yeah, yeah, that that and that question is um, uh, top of mind today because uh, uh, after this call, a little while later, um, I have, a, we have a full staff meeting um, where you know we're not quite four years old and we grew rapidly. And so we ended up with one full time staff person when we came in Warren Lawrence. And now we have a dozen and we're doing some internal work on things and one of the uh the beginning of the agenda for our meeting later this afternoon is bring something that represents um what gives you joy at radio kingston and um yeah so you know what what gives me joy is um being in this community where uh, we just moved to a new studios just across Broadway from, from mm-hmm. where like where I am right now is our old studios and, and the radio station was here for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up across the street in, in an extraordinary historic um, uh, octagon brick building with three giant glass windows that face out onto Broadway. So sure. we're literally on Broadway. And, you know, what what gives me pleasure is to be out in the neighborhood and to meet the people who I know, who are my neighbors here, Mm -hmm. who um, we interact with on a daily basis, on a regular basis, the uh, wonderful humanity that we interact with every day. And what gives me joy is when we go to, we have a, a, a tech team who provides audio and video support to a lot of the other nonprofit organizations in the city to uplift their messages, whether they're having an event or they're uh, doing in the pandemic, they needed Zoom support to do virtual stuff when in-person stuff shut down. And to be of service and to um, have that felt, to feel that impact is what gives me the most joy. It's Mm -hmm. just, I know we're doing, we don't need accolades, we don't need our logo on stuff uh, and, um, the joy I get from knowing that we're of service to the community um, is uh, uh, the best thing I've ever felt in my professional life and in my personal life as well outside of my family. I just, mm-hmm. it, it um, and, and uh, it's a surprise to me to have landed here at this point in my life and career. I didn't see this coming four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I was re- wondering, okay, well, w- w- what's next? Do I ride this, you know? Uh, WDST flame out to the end. It wasn't really serving me in the way that I just described. W- what do I do? And then this appeared and I'm so deeply fortunate to have this opportunity and uh, just having people in this neighborhood know my name and me know their name um, is just remarkable. My my, my son doesn't want to <laughs> go to the farmer's market with me in uptown Kingston either because uh, we stop we stop and talk to, you know, dozens of people, and uh, just being integrated in our communities uh, is the thing that gives me joy.
0: That is beautiful. Thank you for that. And, you know, there's so much we could talk about, about just that being integrated into community, the hunger for that, the need for that, the joy that comes from that, the rubbing elbows the the walking around with uh, what did you call it wonderful humanity, you know and I always call it the wacky and wondrous humanity project you know so so that's beautiful, thank you. Um, so before we sign off, is there any, are there any events, we really just have a minute or two, but are there any events or any upcoming, um, or any, anything you want listeners to know about? I just want to say that I had the honor of doing a little volunteering in the medical clinic at O Positive. And whoa, talk about Kingston community and people coming together and just rolling up their sleeves with great love and great spirit. Um, but are there any other events that are on the radar for the next couple of weeks that you want people you know, to
1: know we, we, we're coming to the end of the season. There's a, a really great organization in Kingston, my Kingston kids and uh, Frank waters and, and, and his crew are putting on a my Kingston kids Halloween party on the 30th of December um, with a parade beginning in Midtown and ending at the YMCA and a big party afterwards. I think that's really, um, uh, uh, it's going to be a real special event. And then, you know, we'll we'll hunker down and get through the the dark months of of winter and the return of light come February and and March. And hopefully on the other end of that, um, wherever we are in regards to the pandemic, we'll have lessons enough that we can do more in-person stuff. You know, we've been in this hybrid space for a couple months. We opened up our new studios. We were thrilled to have people come in. And then a week later, we shut it down again because of the Delta variant. So we're looking forward to just wrapping up a couple of these events as they move forward. Uh, but also uh, really just taking the beat of winter, um, mm-hmm. taking the, the respite of winter, really, to um, uh, rejuvenate ourselves and hopefully come out. Uh, I think it's probably a universal feeling that we all want to come out Um, metaphorically and literally on the other side of winter um, in a much better space.
0: Uh (laughs) And so may it be. (laughs) So may it be.